Hi, Pastor Rob here from City East Church and MTL Ministries. What you hold is true. Is it really truth? Will what you believe get you through on Judgment Day? Are you keeping to the pattern of sound teaching held out in Scripture? In this series, Truth, Judgment and Eternity, I intend to deliver messages that check the solidness of our Christian foundation so as to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us as Christ's ambassadors on this earth. Living in the end times. The end times is one of those topics that men have been fascinated with for thousands of years. Have you noticed that? In fact, basically every culture who has ever lived has spoken of a day when the world will expire or when men will expire and come to an end. They see a time in the future when the human race would be no more. And that's not just the Christian view. Most cultures, you'll find, have have got these end-day or final-day prophets. Today, I'm I'm not going to talk too much about what the end times is all about. That's, that's a, a topic for another sermon. I'm going to pull up a, just a handful of scriptures in relation to it. But what I'm going to bring up, though, is that the, what the people of God should look like in these days, what kind of lifestyle they would be leading that would identify them as God's people. Do you know what I mean? When we're living in a wicked and wretched world, what do the people of God look like? How do we differentiate between us, between us and the world? Because it's very easy to be drawn into the world, isn't it? And do as the world does. And you know what? Many Christians are living in the world, as they say, one foot in the world, one foot in the church, or one foot in the kingdom. But no, there should be a distinct difference. We're supposed to be lights that shine in a dark place. So that's what my sermon is about today. And I think it's a very, very important sermon. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, he said, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They'll be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And then Paul says, have nothing to do with them. Meaning, have nothing to do with their ways. Don't do what they do. We're supposed to try to win them. For Jesus, but we're not supposed to do what they do to win them to Jesus because it doesn't work. Joe Schimmel said he's not a Christian that only spends time with Christians. He spends time with unbelievers. But when he's spending time with unbelievers, he's not spending time to enjoy their company. He's spending time with them to help them to find Jesus. He enjoys the company of Christians, but he spends time with unbelievers to try to win them to Jesus. And that's a, a very important point I think we should all take into consideration. Many will say that these qualities, this long list of of qualities of what the people are like in these last days, they'll say that these qualities have been around for thousands of years. In fact, Adam and Eve's son Cain murdered his son Abel. He was he was lacked self-control, he was brutal, he wasn't a lover of good, he was treacherous, he was rash, he was conceited. He was a lover of pleasure, 
So he, right from the outset, this was around in the human race. But there's something about this scripture that speaks directly to this time. And I think it is the increase, the increase in this, where it's popular to be like this. In the past, it was something you do in secret and you try to put on a face when you go out in public. So you'd have all these sins in secret. Now, it's popular to be sinful in public. Actually, if you're not being sinful in public, they look at you like there's something wrong with you. Why aren't you getting involved in this? Why aren't you joining in the gay Mardi Gras and jumping up and down? Why aren't you, you know, checking out all the chicks that are walking past in the street? Why aren't you trying to pick them up and take them home? Why aren't you getting drunk with the rest of us? What's wrong with you? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 4 says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers have died, everything goes on as it has been since the beginning of creation. Everything continues as it has been. You know, I've heard that. I've, I've witnessed the people and then they've scoffed at me and mocked me. And then they'll say, where's Jesus? You know, he said he was going to return. You keep saying he's going to return, you Christians. And we don't see him. But I remember Matthew once, about a year ago, he said, he said he's only going to return once. That's it. That's the end after that. So he's only going to do it once. And you know what? Every second he does not return, every hour that he does not return is grace to this world. It's mercy shown by God to the people of this world. Every minute he holds off is another moment that they could receive Jesus and live for eternity. If, if he came now, how many people do you know? How many people could you count, according to the gospel, would not go to heaven? How many people? Multitudes. We don't want Jesus to come too soon. We want to see our families come into the kingdom. We want to see our communities come into the kingdom first. We want to see God's name lifted up, glorified all over the earth before he returns. And it does say this, the gospel, this gospel will be preached to all the nations, then the end will come. So that is a prophecy in the Bible. So that's how we're going to know. Everyone's going to hear the word of God all over the earth. And I believe that's going to be done through probably the two witnesses. It'll be a declaration made in the last days for three and a half years. But I won't go into that now. 1 John Chapter 2, verse 18 says, Dear children, this is the last hour. Keep in mind, he said this 2,000 years ago. This is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come. Who was one of the first Antichrists in the Bible? Anyone know? Herod the Great. When Jesus was born, he went in immediately after Jesus was Obviously, an angel delivered him, Jesus and, and Joseph and Mary, from that situation in Bethlehem. And he came in the next day. What did he do? He slaughtered all these boys under two years old. That's the heart of the Antichrist. Mass murder. So Herod the Great was the, probably the first Antichrist. And then there have been many since. Emperor Nero was one. He used to get Christians and wrap them in wax and hang them on poles and light them up like candles. So you could have fun at his parties with Christians screaming as they die in pain. Antichrist, this is what they do. Hitler was an antichrist. And that's one of the antichrists that have come since this time. 
1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and Son. So who is the Antichrist? Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That narrows it down a bit, doesn't it? So anyone that you know that is telling you that Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life is the Antichrist. So many Antichrists have come. Actually, we live in a society filled with Antichrists. Our leaders are Antichrists. The Prime Minister of our country is an Antichrist. And all the official, most of the officials are. There are some godly people among them. The Greens, the, the party of the Greens is full of anti-Christian people. So this is what we live amongst. It's very easy to spot Antichrist. But is it so easy to spot believers in Christ? Matthew and I were having a conversation the other day about Christians who indulge in the world and live like the rest of them. How they go out, they get drunk. They probably, you know, there's some that probably still take drugs. They probably sleep around, all this sort of thing. Yet they go to church on Sunday. Yeah. Not, not healthy, is it, to be like that? Because what's happening is they'll probably be telling someone when they're out drunk as skunks, trying to tell another person who's a drunk as a skunk about how they need Jesus. And they're looking at them saying, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. Because the world, as I've said a few weeks ago, the world knows and what the Christian should look like. If you want to know what a Christian should look like, ask an unbeliever. They'll say, oh, a Christian, he should be praying, he should be reading the Bible, a Christian should be a godly man, should be a person that doesn't do sinful things. So an unbeliever knows, but the Christian gets all confused. And we, we dabble in this, we dabble in that, we do a bit of the things that we shouldn't do. Now, I'm not advocating that a Christian shouldn't drink. I'm not actually one of those believers that think a Christian shouldn't drink. Paul actually advised drinking a little bit of wine. So I don't, Jesus actually used to drink. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. Where was he found? He was with people that used to drink. Now, he didn't get drunk, but he would have a sip. I don't mind a glass of red wine. So I'm not a Christian that's going to go and advocate you. Drinking is evil. But you know what? If someone is an alcoholic, they shouldn't drink. And guess what? If I go out with them on a night out, I won't drink either. Because I don't want to tempt him with what he's weak, with his weakness. I don't have any trouble with alcohol, but this guy does, so I won't drink for his sake. Does that make sense? And also, if I go among people who think it's sinful to drink, I won't drink for their sake as well. But it's not going to affect my conscience in relation to it because I know there's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine. I know there's something wrong when you have 10 glasses of wine. Romans 12.2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. We want to know what his will is. So what I've come up with is eight distinguishing features of Christians in the end times. Just eight of them. There was actually a stack more, but I thought I'd better narrow them down because it's getting a bit too long as it is. So I'm going to go through them quite quickly, as quick as I can, as the Holy Spirit will let me. The first one that came to mind is that Christians should have clean mouths. And I'm not talking about just brushing your teeth. I believe you should brush your teeth, but that's not what I'm talking about. Mark 7.20, that work? No. 
Mark 7, 20 to 23, Jesus says, What comes out of a mouth is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. There's those lists again. Stephanie read a list today in Galatians 5. All these lists of of the evil things that are around. And we should read those lists and go, hang on, am I doing any of those? Because if I am, I better stop it. Christians should keep a tight rein on their tongue. And a Christian in these times should never swear or curse. James 3, 9 to 10 says, With the tongue we praise the Lord our Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. This shouldn't be. Christians should simply not swear or curse. I remember before I became a Christian that swearing was just a natural part of my vocabulary. I don't think I could say a sentence without adding it, embellishing it with a swear word of some kind. I used to think, you know, oh, it's in the dictionary, so let's use it. And I use those words more than any other word. But since becoming a Christian, I've had to put a tight rein on my tongue. And, and the longer I'm a Christian, the tighter that rein's getting. So it's, it's important that we keep this in mind. Another one that God gave me as a distinguishable feature of Christians in today is we will be people of self-control. We should control our anger, our lusts, our evil desires, our words, our actions, actually keeping a tight rein on every area of our life. Now, remember, guys, when I preach this stuff, it's because God's dealing with me in these things. He's talking to me all the time about stuff, and that's the best sermons, I think, come from that, what God's dealing with you about. Self-control. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter also said in 4.7, 1 Peter 4.7, The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. If you're not clear-minded and self-controlled, you won't be able to pray. How many people, when they get upset, can pray? If you get really upset and worked up, the last thing you can do is pray. So we've got to keep control of that. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Who does he devour? Those that lose self-control. And you know what? I've been there and I know what it feels like to be devoured by Satan as a Christian when I've lost self-control. And we've got to change. Just as a matter of interest, it is interesting to note that Paul's theme in his discourse to Felix, the Roman governor who, in the book of Acts, it was righteousness, self-control and judgment. It says here, Acts 24.25, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and he said, that's enough for now. You know, have you ever felt like saying that to me? That's enough for now, Come back tomorrow, we'll talk about it a bit more. You may leave, he said. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. So what happened was his conscience declared that he was a sinner and in need of salvation. And so he said, shut up, will you? I don't want to hear any more. Come back later. I'll call you when I'm ready. Because I can't handle it right now. Does that make sense? We don't want to be like that ourselves. That we don't want to hear the truth because it hurts us a bit. 
I like this, this little story. Henry Ward Beecher tells a story about his father. He said this, Once a man came to our house, he was red with, with wrath. He was boiling over with rage. He had or supposed he had a grievance to complain of. My father listened to him with great attention and perfect quietness until he had got it all out. And then he said to him in a soft and low tone, Well, I suppose you only want what is just and right. The man said, yes, but went on to state the case over again. Very gently, the father said to him, if you, had if you have been misinformed, I presume you would be perfectly willing to know what the truth is. And the man said he would. Then my father, very quietly and gently, made a statement on the other side, and when he was through, the man got up and said, forgive me, doctor, forgive me. Father had beaten him by his quiet, gentle way. I saw it and, gave, and it gave me an insight into the power of self-control. Isn't that amazing? When I read that, it's like, wow, there's power in that little illustration of how we should be when people confront us aggressively and they want to persecute us. Have a quiet and gentle spirit. The third distinguishable feature is that we should be slaves of righteousness. Romans 6.19 says, Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, which leads to holiness. Offer it to righteousness. No longer should we live in sin and ever-increasing wickedness, but we should be slaves and obedient to the Holy Spirit and live in righteousness. That's where we should be, living righteously all the time. Live as if God is right beside you, watching your every move. Even in private, live conscious of God at all times. And that's the way to live in righteousness. The fourth distinguishable feature is that we should be people of prayer. It's an obvious one, isn't it? Romans 12, 12 says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Ephesians 6.18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Colossians 4.2 says, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. We've got to devote ourselves to this. You know what? We can read that. We can say, here the Bible say, Devote yourselves to prayer. And we'll go, yeah, that's right. And then the next day, what do we do? We don't devote ourselves to prayer. And we, we're not watchful, we're not thankful. So easy to do. Prayer is a hard business. Who, who agrees with that? <laughs> it's not easy to pray. You know, I've had the, the easy sessions. Who's had an easy session of prayer? You walk in and the Holy Spirit comes on you and half an hour to an hour later you're just like pumped up and it was just fantastic. And you're thinking, okay, that's great. I'm going to do that every day. Come in the next day and it's like you walk in and who put the air conditioner on? It's the middle of winter here. It's freezing. No God. Or so you think. And then the next thing you know, you're sweating it out. You're trying to work something up. Prayer is tough. But you know what? It proves our metal. It proves how strong we are. It proves how tough we are. And we've got to get stronger in that area. I, I worked out, okay, if you can't pray for an hour, pray for 10 minutes. But then come back a few hours later and pray for another 10 minutes. And throughout the day, spread your prayer out. And keep coming back and, and praying. Keep conscious of God. And it's probably better to do that in some ways because you keep connecting back. Prayer is the indispensable act of purity in a Christian's life and should be practiced at all time 
and in every situation. The fifth distinguishable feature is that we should be people of great faith, exercising faith at every opportunity. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith. Putting it on. So it's like clothing. You put it on. You don't just get up and walk off and that's it. You have faith. You have to put on faith. It's a decision to put on faith. And love as a breastplate. You put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So you keep putting on, yes, I'm saved by the grace of God. And I've got to remember that and I've got to live according to that salvation. So keep that on mind, in your mind. That's why you put it on your head. So it stays in your head, in your mind. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. We've got to set an example. Just imagine he said that to you. You've got to set an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. People of faith will constantly be in prayer because we will believe God's word and claim answers to prayer for healing, for salvation of loved ones and every other need that prompts our faith. We should be continually in prayer, walking in prayer. When you get in the car and you've got a half an hour drive, pray. Put some worship music on. Worship, pray, lift your heart up to God. Take every opportunity. If you're in the workplace, go to the toilet, pray just for five minutes. You've got that time alone. Just be with God. Take every opportunity in your day to be with God that you can. Some of us have more opportunities than others. Houston pastor John Basungo describes a time when his daughter, age five, came to him and asked for a dollhouse. This is just an example of great faith. John promptly nodded and promised to build her, her a dollhouse. And then he went back to reading his book because she came in. Dad, can I have a dollhouse? He says, yeah, yeah, I'll build it for you. And then he went back to reading his book. Soon he glanced out the study window and he saw her arms filled with dishes, toys and dolls, making trip after trip until she had a great pile of playthings in the yard. And he asked his wife, what's she doing out there? And his wife said, you promised to build her a dollhouse and she believes you. So she's just getting ready for it. You would have thought that he said this, I'd been hit by an atom bomb. I threw aside the book, raced down to the lumberyard for supplies, and I quickly built that girl a little doll's house. We have to ask, why did he respond? This is what we've got to remember. Why did John respond to that little girl's request, his daughter's request? Was it because he wanted to do it? He didn't want to do it. He wanted to read his book. He was relaxing. He didn't want to go out and build it. Did he do it because she deserved it? Not really, because she probably had a room full of toys. No, her daddy had given his word, and she believed it and acted upon it. And when Pastor John saw her faith, nothing could keep him from carrying out his word. Isn't that good? And so he would respond. And you think, well, if that's how we respond in the natural, what's God going to respond like in the spiritual when we take him at his word and we go and set up and get ready for the answer and say, hey, God, what's going on? It's here. Sort of like doing this church. We said, Lord, you've called us to do a church. Okay, we're here now. Build it. We started as, as 10, and slowly God's just added a few people. And he's, he's responding. 
And he will respond and he will continue to respond provided we are continually faithful. Okay, the sixth distinguishing feature of Christians living in these end times is that we are people who are in the Word of God, the Bible. Did you know that half the books of the Bible can be read in 10 to 45 minutes each? And many of them can be read in less than 20 minutes. The entire Old and New Testament can be read aloud slowly with, with expression in less than 71 hours. That's in less than three days. Wilbur M. Smith wrote, It will probably astonish many to know that one single normal issue of the Saturday Evening Post, which was obviously a newspaper at that time, contains as much reading matter as the entire New Testament. One newspaper contains as much reading matter as the entire New Testament. Thousands of people read the Saturday Evening Post through every single week. The number of Christians who read the New Testament through every week or even one whole book of the New Testament every week are so few that we, we need not talk about it. You know what? What about Facebook as an example of that? I, I was on Facebook for a little while. I only probably spent about, I think I did three or four of those conversations, you know, in the pop-up conversation thing. I did it about three or four times. And at the time, I was writing my second book, Taking Up Your Cross, and I got distracted. Someone popped up because I had Facebook open while I was on the computer. Someone popped up and wanted to have a discussion. By the time I finished that discussion, I realised that I could have written nearly half a chapter of a book, the same amount of energy and stuff just talking rubbish with this guy, and I could have written half the book, there was that much typing, you know, and all the reading I had to do in that, and I'm thinking all this reading every night on Facebook, I could have read a, a chapter of the Bible quite easily. We spend a lot of time reading rubbish and very little time reading the good stuff, which is in the scriptures. Mark 12.24, Jesus says, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Jesus was questioned by the Sadducees about marriage and who's going to have the wife after death. And he said, Are you not in error? Why? Because you don't know the Scriptures. Are Christians? Are there some Christians today who are in error because they don't know the Scriptures? We've got to know the Word of God. If we're going to claim to be Christian... We've got to know the textbook because we're going to be held up for an exam one day called the Great Judgment, Great White Throne Judgment. We're going to stand before God and have to... He's going to say, how did you go did you, with the questions? I've got, got a question sheet and here's your, here's your answer book. Did you get it right? Did you get the correct answers in life? So keep that in mind. We've got to know this book. It's a, it's a matter of life and death, actually, in knowing the Scriptures. Is imperative that we know the scriptures and that we study them diligently like the Bereans. In the book of Acts, uh, it says in Acts 17.11, Now the Bereans were of a more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying, what he was saying was true. You know, we should be Berean in our approach. When we hear a minister preach, you know, when you hear me preach, go home and read the Word of God. Find out if what I'm saying is true. Put me to the test. Be like a, a, be a Berean. And if we did that more, we would probably find out that, hey, some people are trying to deceive us. Some messages aren't the truth. The Bible says that in these last days that many will be, will be deceived and they will fall away from the faith. 
You know, we are living in a day when we, are, we will see a mass falling away from the church. When we'll see, and we're seeing it even now, aren't we? They say in Europe, with every church that closes, two mosques, Islamic mosques, are built. With every church that closes. And I think they're closing weekly over there in Europe. It's a terrible sign of the times that we are seeing a, a, a gradual decline and degeneration in Christianity all over the world. But some parts of the world, there are great revivals occurring as well. So it is happening. There's contrasts around the place too. Another distinguishing feature is that we will be worshippers in spirit and truth. We will worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 23 to 24 says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and truth. You know, in relation to spirit and truth, we should be filled with the spirit and worship because the spirit who is in us causes us to worship and to go deeper in the things of God and in prayer and worship. But we should also worship in truth, meaning we should know the truth of the word of God so well that we can't help but praise his name because we realise that he is the King of Kings, he is the Lord of Lords, he is the, the one enthroned in heaven. He is the door that we enter through. He is the narrow way that we walk upon to get through this life. We should, we should worship because we know that as truth. And therefore, how can we stand there and go like that in a worship service? When you know that truth, how can you stand there and not worship? That's why Jesus says, spirit and truth. The last distinguishing feature is that we will be witnesses. We will tell others about Christ. And you know what? I found amazing scripture. I couldn't get past it in my Bible study. I've got a pretty large Bible study planned daily. Matthew and, and Johnny know all about it in Venus. It takes me quite a while to get through every day. And, but I was stuck on Philemon, one of the shortest books in the New Testament, one of the shortest, I think John 3 is even shorter. But Philemon verse 6 says, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. I found that fascinating. For us to have a full understanding of everything we have in Christ, every good thing, for you to really understand that, for you to really walk in that and live that out, to understand every good thing that you have in Christ, what do you have to do? You can answer me if you want. Share, yeah. <laughs> All our voices. Share the faith. Tell others about Jesus. If you want to have the fullness of everything you have in Jesus, share your faith. And I thought that's fascinating that he used that as a motivation. Hey, if we share our faith, we're going to get an understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. That's a great revelation and it's a motivation to do it. And you know, then I look back through my life and I found that when I have been most blessed spiritually, most passionate for the things of God has been when I have shared my faith. And there's nothing like sharing your faith and seeing someone's eyes open and them say, wow, I never thought of that before. When I led Matthew to Jesus, that was an amazing, amazing thing. 
to lead them to Jesus. Not just that. Now, as I continue to share the faith with Matthew over the years and see him grow and grow until he, his level of Christianity puts so many long-term Christians to shame. And I'm like, wow, I'm getting a blessing from that of every good thing I have in Jesus. And as I share with my children, as I share with my wife, as I share with Jenny, and I've told, talked to Jenny on so many occasions, and Vina has about Jesus, and seeing the way, how receptive she gets, it's beautiful. So it's not just sharing with people that don't know Jesus, it's sharing with people that do. Just sharing your faith. Now, Matthew, could you come up and tinkle, tinkle the ivories for us? Yeah. So if you lack... Un- Lack the understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. And I encourage you, just start sharing your faith. And you know what? If someone throws something at you because they don't want to receive what you have to say, receive it with joy. The Bible says that when the the disciples were persecuted, I think it was John and Peter were persecuted, they were whipped, scourged because of sharing the gospel. They came out rejoicing. They were dancing. You hear Paul, and I think it was Paul and Silas, or Paul and... They were singing down in the dungeon. You know, they were in their chains and they were moving around, like, to the music, which they could hear the angels singing, you know. They were... Sharing your faith is a wonderful thing, regardless of outcome. And you know what? Just say in the scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things, you tell someone about Jesus, and that person hates you for it. Throws something at you. Never wants to be your friend again. And then when you get to heaven and you wonder whatever happened to that person or I never saw again. And he's standing at the gate or she's standing at the gate and welcome you into the kingdom of God. Say thank you for sharing that, that message. Because I rejected it at the time, but you know what? I couldn't get it out. It was stuck in my heart. And just before I died, just before I closed my eyes for the last time, I received Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. And thanks to you, all those years earlier, just to say those few words to me, I'm now saved. You sacrificed my friendship so that I can have eternal life. We've got to start seeing things from God's perspective, from God's eye view, how He sees things. And you know what? If we don't share, we, the Bible tells us that in eternity, we will be able to stand over the pit of God and look in and see those that have rejected the truth. We will be able to stand and look down into hell. Did you know that? It's in the scriptures in the book of Revelation. And gaze upon those that rejected him. And you will look down and you'll see people that you knew you could have talked to. And you'll go, I know Jesus says you wipe away every tear, but man, I'm sure you're going to have to shed a tear when you see that. Because if we lose those opportunities, uh, they, they're fleeting, they go so quickly. Share the gospel. The moment you accepted Christ in your life and said, I'll, I'll believe in you, you are called to share what you believe. You're called to tell others. And you know what? They don't all throw things at you. They don't all reject you. There's many times when they'll actually receive what you're saying. Or you may talk to someone who's been a Christian and got disillusioned and left the church and then you just say something that just reignites their flame. You know? I see Christianity like a pilot light that you've got to keep the flame burning but Satan comes along and blows them out, blows the pilot light out 
and then you're trying to get the hot waters, none there. You've got to go back and ignite it again. You've got to go back and do the thing with the buttons. Hold it for 10, 15 seconds. <laughs> so you've got to hold out in prayer and get that flame burning again. And then you turn it on, you want the hot water, you want the blessing of God. Tell others about Jesus. I always challenge you all this week, tell one person this week, tell one person about Jesus. Find an opportunity and see if you can reach them with the gospel. It doesn't have to be much, but just something, just ask the Holy Spirit, just help me just to witness this one person. And then you wait until you feel the blessings of God that will come upon you after you've done it. Does this all make sense, guys? Yeah. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this, for this sermon. Lord, I felt that it was by the Spirit. I felt that it was uh, in your will. So I just pray that uh, every word that I spoke, Lord, that it would have an effect on us, Lord, to, to walk in more of what you've called us to. Lord, Lord, I ask you to help us to clean up our language. Help us to walk in self-control as slaves of righteousness, praying in faith, meditating upon the scriptures and telling others about Jesus and his great salvation. Lord, I pray that we'll walk in all of those distinguishing characteristics that will set us apart from the people of the world. And Lord, that we would reject the things of the world and refuse to walk in them and only walk in what Christ has called us to walk in. And Lord, I pray this in your wonderful name. I pray that you will go with all of us this week and that you'll do an amazing thing in our life and that you'll get us passionate for the Scriptures, passionate for prayer, passionate to live righteously and uh, walking in self-control. Help us in this, Lord, because we need you. We need your help by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can move in us in this man and I pray for an outpouring right now in every heart here in the name and the blood of Jesus.